it kind of evolved. It, it wasn't a like, hey, I'm going to change the world all in one go. It was just, this is important. This needs to be done. It was kind of one thing led to another. You know, it was lots of baby steps and you look back, you think, my goodness, how did that happen? What does it take for an idea to change the world? Maybe it starts with a light bulb moment, a sudden flash of insight. But having an idea and making a success of it are very different things. It's the difference between invention and innovation. In this podcast series, we're looking at the people and stories behind world-changing ideas. Some of them you'll have heard of. Some of them you won't. Sometimes it takes decades of work to create what looks like an overnight success. By telling these stories, we hope to illuminate how innovation really works in practice. I'm Tom Standage from The Economist, and this is Game Changers. medium vanilla latte please. In the past couple of years and particularly during the pandemic you may well have got used to paying for things by using your phone. Once it's been set up to handle contactless payments a modern smartphone is a bit like a sort of financial magic wand. You can buy groceries or a sandwich or a coffee or pay for a taxi with just a wave of your phone. It's quick and convenient compared with using cash or cards and it means you can often leave your wallet at home, which is strangely liberating. Thanks so much. Bye. The biggest markets for contactless mobile payments are China, where they account for an estimated $1.3 trillion worth of transactions a year, America, with about half a trillion dollars, and Britain, with about $100 billion worth of transactions triple the figure from two years ago. Around the world, about one and a half billion people now regularly use their phones to pay for things, including roughly a third of the population in Britain and America. But despite these impressive figures, Western consumers are in fact playing catch-up. Mobile payments have been widespread for more than a decade in another part of the world, in Africa, and in particular in Kenya, where the world's first successful mobile money system, called M-Pesa, was launched in 2007. Within five years, it was being used by 70% of the population, and 50% of Kenya's GDP now flows through the system. M-Pesa's remarkable success demonstrated the transformative power of using phones for payments, and it made the rest of the world sit up and take notice. You could pay for a taxi using your phone in Nairobi years before you could do so in New York. So why did the idea of using your phone to pay for things take root in the developing world so much earlier? And what does this tell us about the role of consumers, incumbents and regulators in driving game-changing innovation? 
Before mobile money, first of all, there was um, very little access to banks. Banks have, you know, have been there way before mobile money. There was little access to banks because, uh, number one, a large part of the population has a very low incomes, and banks used to require, you know, a certain minimum amount to be maintained in a bank account, which poor people just don't have. Juliet Mburu is a specialist in digital payments at FSD Kenya, an organisation that promotes financial inclusion. And then another big thing was that there's a lot of people who move from the rural areas to work in the cities. And because of that, they always need to send money home. So the way they used to send money home was through long distance buses. So you'd go to the like the bus stop and give them your you know little envelope with your money that you're sending back home to your family. So people just kept money somewhere hidden, whether it's under the mattress or little hole in your compound somewhere in a tin. That's how people kept it out of reach and sort of safe. In the early 21st century, people in Kenya lived in a cash economy. And you can imagine how inconvenient that is. You had to pay for everything in person. So every time you wanted to move money to someone else, you physically had to go there and take it to them, which of course is time-consuming, terribly inconvenient and rather high risk. So there was a definite demand for a better way to move money around. In 2005, Susie Loney was working for Vodafone Group, the parent company of Safaricom, Kenya's biggest mobile phone operator. At the time, the adoption of mobile phones was taking off across sub-Saharan Africa. Millions of people were getting phones for the first time. Safaricom was a young company that had been successful way beyond anyone's expectations. They were looking to get a million customers in five years. When I was out there, they had their fifth anniversary and were celebrating their five millionth customer. This means that they had a lot of, if I can call it that, spare cash because they were earning way beyond anything in their their budgets. So they had the, the money and the inclination to invest. Susie had been brought in to work on a Safaricom project that would help people take out and pay back small loans, an idea called microcredit or microfinance. Back then, uh, microfinance was seen as the, the great hope to help get more economic empowerment into emerging markets. And it was very clunky and inefficient. Everything was done manually by pretty much every microfinanced institution. These small loans meant that people outside the banking system, in other words, with no bank accounts, could smooth out their household cash flow or borrow to expand a small business. Microfinance loans were typically used, the big one is school fees. Everybody needs to pay their school fees before the harvests are brought in, so everybody's short of cash at that time of year. A lot of it was for financing a small business to get raw materials to make the pots and pans or to make the clothes that were being sold. Susie Loney's project in Kenya had been started by a Vodafone executive, Nick Hughes, who wondered whether mobile phones might be able to streamline the administration of microfinance loans. You know, you can do more than just talk with Vodafone Pay as you talk. You can send and receive text messages with it too. He'd applied for funding from a branch of the British government, the Department for International Development, or DFID. In 2003, we were awarded some funding from DFID that had been set up to encourage private sector companies to take a risk on a project that they normally wouldn't do. 
and especially around some of the areas that were all linked into what were then called the Millennium Development Goals. We now know them as the Sustainable Development Goals. But financial inclusion was one of those goals. And so we put a, a proposal in that said, we think we can use phones to enable low-income households and small businesses to borrow money and make repayments through the digital channel. The inspiration for this project came in part from an informal way of using mobile phones to make payments that had recently emerged spontaneously in many countries in sub-Saharan Africa. It involved using mobile phone airtime. Airtime was actually being used as a proxy currency and people were buying some airtime in one location and using it themselves, but also sending airtime to other people's phones. Topping up a mobile phone involved buying a scratch card from a local airtime reseller or agent, normally in a small neighbourhood shop. The code on the card could then be entered into the phone to provide credit that could be spent on calls and messages. But some mobile operators introduced features that allowed customers to send airtime credit from their phone to someone else's. Some people began to use it as an alternative form of money. If I send you 100 Kenyan shillings in phone credit, then you don't have to spend that 100 shilling note in your pocket to top up your phone, and you can spend it on something else instead. In effect, I've sent you 100 shillings, sort of. Better still, I can send airtime to anyone on the network almost instantly, regardless of their location. But I must say, that that was always fairly limited, actually, because it's, it's not real money. It's a proxy for currency. And so whilst it was happening it was never going to be a, a scalable opportunity. It was a bit clunky, but as the science fiction writer William Gibson once observed, the street finds its own uses for things. In the tech industry, this sort of thing is sometimes called user-led innovation, where users come up with unexpected uses for a technology that were not anticipated by its creators. Anyway, back to the Safaricom microcredit project in Kenya. The idea was to allow people to make small repayments towards a loan without having to travel and hand over the money in person. If they could load money onto their phones, they could then send loan repayments in much the same way that people were sending airtime. The minimum viable product was an ability to turn cash into electronic money which could then be sent to your microfinance institution. Because up till then, you had to go and attend a group meeting and carry the cash with you. And then a, the treasurer of your group, surrounded by a posse to protect them, would go to the bank, which could be some distance away, to pay in the cash. So we built a platform where all participants in a microcredit group could use a phone to make payments in against the loan. So everybody had a phone, a very simple phone, a feature phone, that could do encrypted SMS, which we built the platform to do, but it was anyone in the group who could make a payment on their phone. By late 2005, the team had a working prototype. They called it M-Pesa. It had to be a really small word because you've only got 160 characters in the text message and I didn't want half of them to be taken up by the brand name. So it became M-Pesa, M for mobile, and Pesa is Swahili for money. So it literally means mobile money. But would people want to use it? We started off with a pilot. We were looking for 500 people um, to take part who were going to repay their microfinance loans and about 10 to 12 agent shops where you could do your cash in and, of course, your cash out. The trial of M-Pesa relied on agents who sold airtime for Safaricom. The agents were small airtime resellers. So basically, they sold Safaricom airtime and mobile phones, SIM cards, phone covers, all the usual stuff. They were 
reasonably open-minded to taking part because remember their whole business had grown out of nowhere over the last few years because you know there were no mobile phones and suddenly there were five million customers and airtime resellers all over the country so they were prepared to try anything that safaricom suggested because thus far it worked well for them as well as taking in cash and turning it into airtime, these agents could now turn cash into M-Pesa credit, which could then be used to send loan repayments without having to go anywhere in person. So that started in Nairobi and one of the, I guess they'd call it slums, I guess we'd call it townships there, and also in the central business districts. Every week I went around every single agent to check they knew what they were doing and make sure everything was working. We started at the beginning of October 2005 with a pilot and a week later, it was actually my birthday and the best birthday present I could ever have got. I went back to one of the groups I'd been retraining to see, you know, how have you got on over the last week, you know, fingers crossed. And they were all so positive about it. Yes, we did it and it worked and they were singing its praises. And I also sent money to somebody else in the group. This was a turning point. Nick Hughes what we noticed during that pilot period was individuals within the groups were starting to send each other money because they had this ability not just to pay the treasurer and make their weekly repayment, but they could also send others money within that group. And we saw them starting to transact amongst themselves. You know, you could hear the penny drop. It just clunked resoundingly. I thought, we are onto something that is so much bigger than microfinance loan repayments. It was another case of user-led innovation taking the creators of a technology by surprise. And so at that point, we started saying, well, actually, we've overcomplicated this first platform. We don't need to be thinking about different roles such as treasurers and repayment rates. And in fact, why don't we just offer people what is clear they need, which is the ability to load money into a wallet and to send it person to person. It grew virally, for sure. We actually kept the pilot going for about three months longer than we were supposed to because of user demand. You know, they were literally saying, please don't stop. So, you know, that's as good an endorsement as you could hope for. The creators of M-Pesa had stumbled upon a huge unmet need and M-Pesa's users had plenty more ideas about how it could be expanded. You know, they were coming back to us and demanding, why can't I pay my electricity bill using mobile money? And, you know, why can't I have my salary paid by mobile money? So we, we were onto something that people wanted. For all this to happen, though, the M-Pesa team first needed to talk with the Kenyan Central Bank, which was responsible for regulating financial services in the country. The Central Bank was one of the best I've ever worked with, and I've, I've worked with an awful lot of African Central Banks by now. They were much more open-minded and prepared to listen. A large part of that was because we were representing Safaricom and Safaricom was this company that had gone from zero to being the biggest company in the country over five years. And they were providing a service that was hugely popular and useful and clearly being run in an ethical way. So we had credibility because of how we approached them. Make no mistake, they did put us through it. We spent a lot of time writing reports and filling in forms and going into meetings to explain things and and answer some really nasty questions. But unlike many regulators, they were actually really open-minded if we could give them a a good answer. The bank didn't actually grant formal permission for M-Pesa to go ahead. It just said that it didn't object to it. It was 
we cannot regulate you because you are not a bank. However, we will not raise an objection as long as you do all these things. So it wasn't a yes. They didn't say no, but they avoided saying yes also. We had to demonstrate to the regulator, the central bank, that no artificial currency was being created, no new currency was being created. But we also had to demonstrate that the customers' funds were safe and secure. By 2007, the M-Pesa team had pivoted towards building a national mobile money system. It would let people load money onto their phones, send it to other users, and turn it back into cash when required, using Safaricom's existing agent network, who would get a small cut of some transactions. But of course, there's no fee to put money in. So if I go to an, an agent with my 10,000 shillings and I give the agent my 10,000 shillings, I want to see 10,000 shillings appear in my wallet. There is a fee when you take the cash out. So the Safaricom in running that model would have to pay those agents a commission. We had to recruit the agents. That was the hard bit. Mostly in Kenya, the agent network is you will have one businessman or woman who has maybe five or 10 shops. You know, it's not centralised in the way it is in developed markets. So it was a, a lot of networking to pick up all these fives and tens and 20 shops to get up to, you know, we, we were targeting a thousand within a year. Those agents are key. They are effectively human ATMs. You go to an agent for a cash in or a cash out. And so building that agent network was actually critical to the growth of M-Pesa in the early days. You had to have enough agents to serve the customers. as So whichever village they went to, they were confident there was an agent there. That agent had float, electronic float and cash float, and would be able to do a transaction for them. As the launch approached, Safaricom needed a simple and effective way to explain the benefits of M-Pesa in its advertising. It decided to go with a simple slogan, send money home. We had a TV commercial, and this is the important thing. We used the use case of send money home, somebody working in the city and sending money home to his mum and dad on the farm. It was a particularly good commercial. I, I used to work in marketing. That's one of the better ones I've ever seen. You know, it showed you exactly how the thing worked. Now you can send PESA fast and safe using Safaricom's new service, M-PESA. It is the new reliable way to send and receive money using your mobile phone. Visit your nearest M-PESA agent today. Terms and conditions apply. M-PESA was launched in March 2007, and within two weeks it was being used by more than 10,000 people. I guess what surprised me most was you expected the vast amount of cash flow to be from the city to the countryside because of that advert with the use case, send money home. In practice, we saw as much cash flow of money being sent across Nairobi as we did from Nairobi out into the countryside. So it was very quickly used as a way to avoid travelling across the horrendous traffic of Nairobi to pay for goods or send money to a friend. The M-Pesa team was soon struggling to keep up. Actually, the biggest problem we had after the first month was keeping the tech going so that it could manage the demand. After the first month, we did very little more advertising because we were trying to slow down the number of people being recruited. I mean, for about three years, we were growing at 15% per month, which is pretty huge. 
We had like a thermometer on the wall in the, the office that we filled in every week. The thermometer was when will we get our first million customers. We were looking to get a million in the first year. We got something like two and a half million by the end of the first year. A big part of the reason M-Pesa got off the ground, Susie Loney thinks, is that none of the people working on it came from the world of finance. Nobody in the team came from a banking background or a financial service background. We just all learned on the hoof as we went along. So the, the learning curve for everybody was pretty steep. My background had been in you know, like the nuclear industry and in fast-moving consumer goods. Nick had been in social responsibility and so on. We all came from different backgrounds, but we were all good in our different disciplines at innovation. We didn't realise what we were doing was supposed to be impossible. The way that anyone from a banking background, immediate reaction was, but you can't do that. People from a banking background have always found it harder to understand than people from a non-banking background because they've got a whole set of assumptions about how money works, which is actually, no, that's how money works in their banking system, which is not quite the same thing. Visitors to Kenya who witnessed M-Pesa in action were amazed at what they saw. Obviously, it was Americans who were the most startled because at that time they were still writing cheques, unbelievably, if they wanted to send people money. And I got a lot of, ah, yeah, but, but, and then when they got it, I would immediately get this babble of, but this is amazing. This could be really big. Do you realize how big this could be? Have you thought about the implications? It was, it was kind of like that. It was like, yeah, yeah, I have. It's funny because I actually remember the first person who told me about M-Pesa. And I think it's, it's one of those things where people remember, you know, when they first sort of heard about it. And, and I remember it was in the office and somebody was trying to explain you can now just send money and from your phone. It was even hard to comprehend. Digital payment specialist Juliette Umburu was an IT project manager at Kenya Airways at the time. I remember the first time I used it was because the person who used to come and uh, do a little bit of gardening around my house asked me to pay them using M-Pesa. And I was surprised. <laughs> but that's what triggered me to use it for the first time. You know, you can leave your house without your wallet, but nobody leaves their, <laughs> their home without their phone. Because we, you have your phone, you have your money, and you know you can do basically everything. 79% of Kenyans have mobile money accounts compared to 30% of bank accounts. So a lot of people, because they don't earn that much, it's gone to a point where they don't see the need of even aspiring to have a bank account. They just keep everything on their phone. So whatever wages they earn, it's paid into their phone. They make their payments from their phone, and whatever is left over is just left on the phone. So it has become uh, a safe store of value. And then M-Pesa has come along and then partnered with banks to make it easy for someone to save their money and even to earn some interest on it. And now what we're seeing is that mobile money has really gone way beyond access. So there's things around working with even farmers, uh, working with doctors to provide services, working with the government to enable people to receive social benefits on their phone. So it's really, really expanding. It's no longer just sending money from one person to another. Things have really, really expanded. Within five years of its launch, M-Pesa was being used by 19 million Kenyans, more than 70% of the adult population. One study found that rural households in Kenya that had adopted mobile money saw their incomes increase by between 5 and 30%. This seems to be because sending money by phone saves time. There's no need to travel to take cash somewhere in person, and that gives people more time to do productive work and earn money. 
Mobile money also makes households more resilient to financial shocks, like suddenly having to pay an unexpected medical bill. Making it easier for friends and family to send money means a household is less likely to have to sell a valuable asset, such as a cow or a sewing machine, that they rely on for income. Another study found that access to M-Pesa had enabled 194,000 Kenyan households, or 2% of the total, to lift themselves out of poverty. Mobile money has also provided new opportunities for women. It's closed the financial inclusion gap, and specifically also for the gender gap. Fumi Delagiwa is Director of Legal and Regulatory Affairs at MFS Africa, a fintech company that interconnects mobile money systems and banks in different countries. Historically, women in Africa, though they didn't have access to money, they don't have access to being able to run their own businesses. Females would have to work at home, stay at home, take care of children. So the way that they would approach doing business or having a business would be slightly different. Having access now to mobile money means that they can do business and accept payments on their phones. They can be a bit more flexible. Taking care of children while running a business is not so terrible. And that has closed the gap. It's made it easier for them to make money. So it's been a great creation. Empeza's success led to the launch of similar mobile money systems in dozens of countries around the world. Today, there are more than 300 mobile money services operating in 96 countries, with a total of more than a billion registered users. Vodafone launched Empeza in several other markets. But the initial success of Empeza in Kenya has proved hard to replicate. Kenya, it turned out, was an almost perfect environment in which to launch mobile money. For one thing, very few of its citizens had bank accounts. So in some countries where there is high penetration of banking and banking services, you find that the banks have greater control and probably greater influence on how the regulation looks. And then it makes it slightly difficult for mobile money to take off. And you see it in some markets in Africa as well, South Africa being one of them, Nigeria where mobile money hasn't really taken off. Kenya's supportive regulators also helped, says Juliet Mburu. Some of the markets which have tried to replicate this have had, actually most of the markets, it's, it's really struggled. And it's just because um, I guess each market is, is very different. In Kenya, for example, we had a very um, welcoming, enabling regulatory environment. You can't just sort of copy what was done in Kenya in, into, into their markets. In some countries, banks and regulators saw mobile money as a threat. Nick Hughes again. Vodafone had acquired Hutch in India, and we were very excited about being able to take M-Pesa to India uh, because I think, again, the socioeconomics suggests that there's a need. Perhaps only 20% of the population were banked at the time. This is 2008. And so we made a lot of steps forward into getting ready to launch M-Pesa. In fact, we did launch it, but it never really took off because of some constraints that came in from the regulators. The Reserve Bank of India came in with some other requirements that made it very difficult for us to launch at scale. And this was the need to link to formal financial institutions and use those as the agent outlets. So we weren't able to build an agent network in the same way we'd been able to in Kenya. M-Pesa also benefited from Safaricom's market dominance. M-Pesa itself, it's a product off of the largest telco in Kenya. So they had 70% market share. And so it was already a trusted brand in the country um, that people were aware of. So it was also easy to layer on this mobile money offering on top of this telco offering. 
One mobile money system that does compare well with M-Pesa is Bcash in Bangladesh. It was set up in 2011 by two brothers, Iqbal and Kamal Kadir, and is not affiliated with any particular Bangladeshi telecoms operator or bank. Instead, it connects all of them. Bcash now has 55 million users, more than M-Pesa, which has 40 million users across seven countries. Iqbal Kadir explains how his brother came to start Bcash. My brother, Kamal, he started an e-commerce company called Selbazar, where people could list what they want to buy or sell, but people could not actually transact. Amazon, I buy a book. Or on Craigslist, I can simply post that I'm trying to sell this. So he had the Craigslist without the Amazon. So Kamal started noticing there is a tremendous need for sending money from one person to another. And we then, in 2007, when M-Pesa came about, he endeavored to go to Kenya and learn about this. As soon as we were able to introduce, Kamal was able to introduce it in, in Bangladesh, it took off. Inside Bangladesh, poor people adopted mobile money before rich people did. The main product that took off is sending money from urban to rural areas. That's the people who have the biggest headache. So they jump for a new Tylenol coming into the market. Like M-Pesa, Bcash has moved beyond just sending and receiving money. There are many other things taking place right now. For example, you can pay for your phone within the wallet. Another is to pay your bills You can pay salaries. Even the government is distributing benefits, welfare system. In fact, during the pandemic, the government paid out uh, millions of people uh, some cash because they couldn't work. That was done through Bcash or other mobile payment systems. Why did paying for things with your phone take off in places like Kenya and Bangladesh long before it took off in richer countries? Normally, innovations appear first in rich countries and take longer to appear in poorer countries. Susie Loney again. In the Western world, mobile money hasn't taken off because we don't need it. Otherwise, it would have done. The issue in Kenya is there's no infrastructure. Not only do people not have bank accounts, there aren't ATMs, there aren't smart cards. And I've had quite a few developed markets, you know, including actually um, the mayor of New York's office once contacted me because they were looking at building their own M-Pesa system. And my advice, which wasn't very welcome, I'm afraid, was, you know, you'd be better off issuing smart cards and making ATMs give access to them and making pause terminals take them because it just doesn't make sense. Juliet Mburu. I think more in the West, credit cards were very much in use. People had bank accounts um, and that was not the case here. So the environment was just right for this type of innovation. And it was very clear that in Kenya, there was a problem that needed to be solved. And M-Pesa came in and just solved that for the country. Iqbal Kadir. In English language itself, there is a saying that necessity is the mother of invention. So in poor countries, there might be bigger necessities sometimes. So therefore, it can mother the invention here. And that was certainly true. In other words, people in the West had a payment system with things like bank accounts, credit cards and cheques that worked just fine. So there was no urgent need to move to a system based on phones. There was also, it must be said, reluctance from banks to allow phone-based payments because they worried that telecoms operators or handset makers might steal their customers. 
The existing way of doing things, in short, was an obstacle to innovation. In parts of the developing world, by contrast, where very few people had bank accounts, there was less resistance to new approaches. It's easier to innovate when you have a clean sheet. There are other lessons here too. One is the value of responding to how people actually use a product, even if it's not what the creators of that product intended or expected. Another is the way that M-Pesa was created by people with no previous experience in financial products. Their outsider's perspective meant that they dared to try things that insiders thought were impossible. There's lots of evidence that diverse teams drawn from different backgrounds and from different fields are more innovative because they can see problems from more angles. Looking back on it all, Susie Loney highlights one final lesson from M-Pesa on how to foster innovation. We hear a lot of stuff about don't be afraid to fail and fail fast and give people space to experiment and don't worry about failure and so on. In practice, that hardly happens in a large organisation. And I think that's really important that we were given the space to innovate. You know, we had money, just about enough, and we were empowered to just get on with it. We weren't encumbered with this life, energy, seeping corporate infrastructure. I think there is a strong argument for large organisations to just trust their developers, give them enough resource to get on with it and let them go, as long as you've got a good, sensible team that have got their feet on the ground as well as their heads in the clouds. In the next episode of Game Changers, and the last in this series, we'll consider an innovation that became ubiquitous in a very short space of time. Not because technology suddenly improved, but because social attitudes changed. The wheelie suitcase. You can hear the full story on the next episode of Game Changers. Thanks for listening to this episode. It was a Tempo and Talker production for The Economist. The producer was Tom Pooley, and the executive producer was Sandra Schmueli. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist.